Listener Production. Welcome to Australian Detectives. I'm Adam Shand. My guest today, Detective Senior Sergeant Joy Murphy of Victoria Police, is the longest-serving female police officer in the world, racking up 50 years in the job in 2022. She's also a pioneer in how police deal with sexual offenders in Victoria. She exemplifies the crucial role the sergeant plays in the smooth running of a station or a squad, being a repository of wisdom and a source of counsel to other members. Joy's now in her late 60s. She's changed with the times, but never lost sight of what her sergeants told her coming up. Senior Sergeant Joy Murphy, welcome to Australian Detectives. Thank you. Thank you for uh, inviting me to speak today. Absolute pleasure. It's an honour to meet you. You're currently the world's longest-serving policewoman. Yes, I believe so. Uh, unless there's somebody out there in the back blocks of Papua New Guinea that's been doing it since they're 14, I, I think that's probably correct. <laughs> and if they're out there in the back blocks of PNG, they're welcome to it, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. So how did it all start off for you? I left school at an early age, uh, did a few different jobs, tried a few different things, and uh, my brother joined the police force, and just talking to him about his job, I found it fairly interesting. Uh, I wasn't sure if it was the job for me, but I got to that point with the job that I was doing at the time, I thought, no, I I need something a bit more stimulating, and I really wanted to get into a, a, a job that would put me in a position where I can help people maybe change some things in life. I had lots of aspirations. I'm not sure all of them come true, but I think that, uh, you know, his experience certainly encouraged me to put in an application for the police horse and see what happened. Did he stay in? Yeah, he stayed in for 22 years. He got to inspector rank and he, he worked mostly in, in crime, uh, drug squad, uh, various other areas, uh, crime cars and so forth. So he had a, a fairly interesting career and worked with some great people. Um, he's a great storyteller, so, you know, it was interesting he- to hear his stories. So he was like your hero? Well, he was. Yeah, he was my big brother. Uh, you know, uh, he was my hero, yes, absolutely. Still is? Yes, Absolutely. What does he think about you? You're still going in your career and he's finished up now, I presume? Um, I, I think he's pretty proud of me, actually. Tim, so what did your dad do? My dad was a taxi driver. Uh, he's passed now. He was my stepdad. Uh, my natural father, the family uh, split up when I was about four, so I didn't really get to know him very well. But he wasn't a particularly nice man uh, involved in family violence towards my mother, so... Um, when they split up, he never bothered to keep in touch. So I never really met him again until I was about 25. I met him and he was sort of on death's door. And I, it was just another person. I didn't know him. But then again, that situation at home during those years possibly influenced your career choice? It certainly hasn't been a, um, a conscious decision to join the police force because of that experience of of family violence towards my mother. But subconsciously, perhaps, it's driven me in that area. I guess rather than like a vocational choice, 
I think when we have these dramatic events in our lives, it creates a kind of calling. Yeah, I, I, I would fair. agree with that. Uh, I feel that uh, I have been motivated by calling to uh, make a difference to people that, uh, you know, have unfortunately become a victim of a crime and to investigate crime so that those people that cause that harm you know, get put away. Yeah, when you talk about a calling and you talk about helping people, I guess there are those moments that stick out in your career where you've taken someone in a hopeless situation and just managed to make it a bit better. What are those moments you recall? There's a couple of uh, instances uh, that I can recall that really stand out for me and whilst they're not, you know, great events as such... I bet they were in those people's lives. Well, I'm sure they were and, and how it all panned out actually... When I was a sergeant at Heidelberg, I was in what was called the uh, community policing squad and we used to deal with uh, sexual assault victims and uh, also child abuse matters. And I became aware of a a 15-year-old girl, uh, first name Karen. She was a bit of a wayward kid, you know, sort of out on the streets, homeless, running away from home, that kind of thing. And she got pregnant and, and had a child. And uh, her mother had um, some mental health issues and was reporting her all the time for not looking after the child. And our job was to go out and check to see if the child was being neglected, um, which we did. And I got to know Karen a little bit and I built some trust with her. And, you know, she was looking after that child better than herself, to be honest. It was... uh, Immaculate the way she, uh, you know, had the child uh, looked after. It was clean, it well dressed, it was warm, it was well fed, probably better fed than her. So I supported her, made some referrals for some support agencies that might be able to help her with things. She really needed to live somewhere else away from her mother because her mother's mental health was just deteriorating. And I did that, uh, didn't hear from her for a very long time. It was probably about 20 years later, I got a call from the Neighbourhood Dispute Centre in Preston and the lady there said, I've got this young lady, Karen, here who's brought her friend in who's been impacted by family violence. And she said, get on to Sergeant Murphy, she'll help you. So that 15-year-old girl 20 years later remembered that I helped her. So... That meant a lot to me. I mean, it's no big deal. It's probably something that a lot of police do day in and day out. But to get that feedback was just amazing. Well, particularly when for every Karen, there might be a dozen who don't make it, who lose their lives or just have a, a terrible time and there's never any intervention. So how's the ledger, do you think, for you? Um, I'm not aware of anyone that... Uh, I have, you know, helped over the years to have gone the other way, but that's not to say that it hasn't happened. You know, a lot of people you deal with over a specific incident and you don't hear from them again. You hope that what you did, the the support you gave them, whether they're a victim or a a perpetrator, you hope that, um, you know, for the best outcome, regardless of, of what the problem was, and most you would will never hear from again. Do you wish you'd hear from some? Um, well, I do every now and again. I, I got a letter just in the last month from a lady who was uh, a victim of a serial rapist 
about 45 years ago. And uh, it was when I was at the uh, rape squad, the first rape squad, I think, in Australia that was formed in Victoria. And um, I vaguely remember the name. I'd, I couldn't remember the circumstances, but because I'd, uh, there were some articles in the uh, papers recently, she got my name and uh, she must have remembered me. And she wrote to me to say, you know, I've got your name now. I wanted to write to say thank you. Um, that was lovely to get to. We don't do this job to get the pats on the back or the thank yous, but when you get them, they are fantastic. They really feel good and it just makes you feel that everything that you do, everything that you see, which is not always good, um, it makes it worthwhile. I guess when you go out on the job the next time, that's in the back of your mind. Gives you a little bit of momentum again. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it puts a spring in your step. Because back when your mother was suffering domestic violence from your father, what options did she have then? Look, very few. Uh, I think the police did come around uh, at times. Uh, I don't specifically remember this, but uh, I was told this by my mother that the police would take him out the back and give him a bit of summary justice. It obviously didn't really have an impact on his uh, determination to continue down that vein of, of, of treating her and, and eventually, um, you know, she left him. But I suppose in those days, I, I don't think there was very much at all really for, for women victims of domestic violence. It was call the police and the police would deal with it and more often than not they'd just tell them to stop. But as soon as you walk out, the police walk out the door, you know, it would continue and, and then perhaps they'd get it worse because they called the police. Well, that's right. And, yes, they did dispense summary justice back in the day, give him more than he gave the wife was one of the old formulas. Yeah. But they couldn't be there all the time and they couldn't manage the, the consequences of that event. It was almost regarded as private business. I mean, part of the problem is that, you know, the, the domestic violence is more often not committed by somebody they love and they don't want to believe that this is going to continue. You know, look, this time I've said, no, don't, don't do that again or I'll leave. And they hope, you know, with all their heart that that's, that's the outcome, that it doesn't happen again. But unfortunately it sometimes does and it can sometimes be worse and it just seems to snowball. And, you know, you often have this... This question come from the ignorant, I guess, who say, well, why do you stay around? But when you think that often the perpetrator is the breadwinner, the wife or the husband, conversely, doesn't have any other resources, can't leave, will actually be worse off away from the children. So making that step to report an abusive spouse is a complex one. Absolutely, it is. You don't give up on someone you love just because of one mistake. And they are prepared to see it as a mistake and that it might change. The financial aspect is a big thing, uh, obviously, because some women, you know, may, may have given up careers to be, you know, a wife, uh, a mother. And, you know, it's daunting, you know, for them to suddenly find themselves having to get back into the workforce, be able to earn enough money to support the children. They may have lived, uh, depending on, on the resources the family had, they may, may have been living a very comfortable life and suddenly, you know, because she's getting next to no money or uh, substantially less, they have to drop down 
to a, a level that sometimes they don't feel comfortable with. Sometimes they're not prepared to take that step. There's also um, fear as well, depending on uh, the type of uh, offender that, um, you know, their partner is, where they will, building up to that point, will instil fear in their mind about, you know, if they leave. That's right. And I think in an earlier era, possibly the 60s and the 50s, you saw women with no options who ended up taking their own lives because that was the only way to make it stop. Yes. Uh, it's not just uh, fear of what will happen to them. Uh, often you know, threats are made against the children. Uh, threats are made against perhaps her parents, anybody that supported her. I certainly remember um, a woman in St Kilda, she supported a friend who had left her partner and he turned up at the her address, the, the friend's address, with a shotgun and, and shot through the, um, the glass panel in the door and uh, severely disfigured this woman's face. I look at these crimes, I guess people, other men like me, look at these crimes and say, boy, that's just about 99% men. Do we have a problem with young men in our society or the way we're bringing them up or is it just a fact of life that this is what men do? Look, I think, um, you know, going back to my earlier days uh, and uh, having brothers and a sister, men were expected to be tough. They were the ones that did the physical work around the house. If somebody was, you know, threatening a family member, it was the men that had to stand up and do something about it. And I think society is getting a lot better in understanding that men don't have to be those tough guys. You know, you can still support your family, your friends, your partner, without necessarily resorting to that kind of behaviour, like violence or threats. But, yeah, I don't know what the answer is there. It's it's a complex one. I think if I could solve it, I'd love to be able to solve it. You know, the world would be a better place. Suffice it to say, you find yourself up to this career in this role today. What is it? Currently, um, I'm working at the Socket and the Sex Offender Register. So dealing with sexual assault dealing with offenders of sexual who commit sexual assault offences. And, um, look, I've worked in this crime theme on and off for quite some time, probably the last 30 years, actually. I didn't specifically decide that that's where I wanted to, you know, put my um, energy into. But, it, it, again, it, it can be a very satisfying career move to work in this field because you're dealing with people who have been victims of horrendous crimes. You know, if you can solve that crime, if you can stop one perpetrator, it makes it all worthwhile. Sexual assault's not the easiest thing to investigate because more often than not, the crime's committed in private without witnesses. You know, we have to be able to prove lack of consent and we have to prove that the offender knew that there was no uh, no consent. And that can be difficult, but when we're able to do it, it's quite satisfying because, um, you know, you, you then get that outcome, that validation for the victim. But it is difficult for these victims to come forward because of often there's a sense of guilt that somehow they contributed to the occurrence of that sexual assault either because they were out at the wrong time, they weren't firm enough when they said no. 
And today with social media, a lot of people meet their partners but also offenders on um, dating apps. You know, going to the pub and meeting somebody these days is a lot less attractive than meeting someone online where you can talk to them, uh, find out a little bit about them before you meet up with them. But when they do meet up, up with them, they make the mistake of meeting them in their own home or in the offender's home where they've got no support. If I could get one bit of advice out there, I'd say if you want to meet someone who you've been talking to online, then make sure you meet up with them with people around and preferably some friends of yours around as well. Yeah, very good advice. Now, the force that you joined and the society that you lived in was very different back then. And I think particularly joining the police force, you needed to be fairly resilient. What were the early experiences, I guess, that told you you could cope and gave you a, a taste of what was to come? Yeah, look, a lot of people who knew me didn't think I'd last more than 12 months. They didn't think I had the personality to, to be a police officer. I wasn't sure whether I had it or not, but... What do you think, what do you think that personality is? Oh, look, overtly uh, strong, controlling to some degree, you know, to control a conversation, to be authoritative... Whereas I, I, I uh, and to some degree I'm still the same, I, I, I'm not that kind of person, but I can be when I need to. Um, my personality is generally, you know, I'm a quiet individual and, you know, if I need to step that up a level, I can and I do. But, yeah, I don't see the need to be like that all the time, only when I need to. And I won't be like that to offenders or perpetrators in the first instance because I'd like to be able to talk to them like you and I are talking right now and bring about their cooperation with me rather than demanding it. Maybe listening is a better way to create a, a rapport than telling people how it is. Absolutely. Oh, I think yeah. that, that's so very true and if you don't listen, you miss a lot. Retired Sergeant Brian Francis Murphy served from 1954 to 1987. The skull was loved by many and feared by crooks. He didn't always follow the rules. Now, one of your old bosses, Brian Francis Murphy, oh, yes. who I know you know very well. He's not a cousin, is he? No. Probably not, somehow not the all. Irish side of things. But it used to be funny when we worked together and someone had asked, oh, who are you? Uh, Murphy. Oh, who are you? Murphy. Ah, <laughs> they didn't believe it. But he was then, when you joined him, he was running the Metropolitan Regional Crime Squad. That's correct. Based out of a little dumpy house in North Fitzroy, I think North it was. North Fitzroy, that's yeah, right. Yeah, And he was a bit concerned. There were some pretty rough and ready types. He said people were, were put there who the force wanted to sack back in the day. <laughs> I don't know how you got there, but maybe you were the, supposed to lift the tone. I, I was probably put there uh, to annoy him because uh, I think prior to me uh, working with him, he'd, he'd only had males work with him. And it was probably someone's sense of humour decided I will send him a girl. Murphy tells a story about it. He was very worried about the fact that the, the, the blokes on the squad were very profane and a lot of swearing going on. And he came to you and he said, oh, I'm a bit concerned about, you know, how you're going to go with all the swearing, you know. And you said, well, Mr Murphy, as long as they don't swear at me, it's okay. And if they do, they'll get some feedback. That was his exact quote. Yeah. You know, you had to stand your ground a bit. Uh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, I really enjoyed my time working at the Metropolitan Regional Crime Squad. He's an amazing man, just 
what he doesn't know doesn't exist. I, I learnt a lot from him and, yeah, it was an amazing time to work with him and work with that crew and we all got on very well. I, I mean, I, I'm sure I was treated with a little bit of suspicion to start off with, you know, you know can we swear in front of her or... But, uh, no, it was a really good time in my career. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's a very, very um, kind of like a little flying squad, you know, it, doing it all was. kinds of things and all in, in the bongo van and plain clothes and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And that was when Murphy was battling uh, Ray Chuck Bennett. That was, yeah, that that's was right. Heady I, times. I remember that day. Notorious armed robber Ray Chuck Bennett was gunned down in the city court in 1979. The shooter was almost certainly Brian Kane then an informant to Brian Murphy. When Chuck Bennett was shot, the office got a call straight away, probably within minutes of, of him being shot, to see where Brian was. And uh, Brian had just left, so I, I know it couldn't have been him, but uh, he, he was obviously under suspicion about it for a while. Whilst I was there, I did some amazing work. Uh, I was involved in... Um, uh, capture of a rapist, a serial rapist down in the Paran South Yarra area. Tell us about that. Well, this offender had been uh, invading people's homes. He must have been watching some of his victims because he seemed to know which homes there were women alone. And he would uh, come in during the night, break in, come through windows. It was hot night. I remember at the time it was pretty hot because we did night shift for well over a month just walking around you know, the Paran South Yarra area because we knew that that was the time that he would be out and about. And um, at times, uh, some places where he uh, entered before he went in to, you know, rape the victim, he would help himself to food in the fridge. You know, he he was quite comfortable going into people's homes, you know, with that sort of uh, ill intention. And typically those sort of offenders escalate. Absolutely. He, he, he was escalating uh, as time went on and, and that's why I think that uh, the Metropolitan Regional Crime Squad was called into it. Anyway, one night I was with uh, one of the, the guys uh, in a particular location. We had other people, you know, hiding in the bushes uh, at different locations and saw this shadow coming towards me. I think I was sitting on a fence at the time, so I probably couldn't be seen by anybody walking down the street because I would have blended into the... And what was your role in that setup? Well, our role was to catch him, you know, uh, and that was myself as well. And uh, I was sitting on the fence. My partner was across the road in some bushes or the train station was across the road, so he, you know, he may have even been down onto the platform to have a look. And I saw this shadow coming towards me and um, we had a photo fit of what this fellow looked like and I looked and I thought, you know, this this has got to be him. It really looked like him. So I yelled out to him to stop and there was a laneway just off to his right and he took off down that laneway. The colleague I was with was across the road. He, He probably saw me starting to chase after this person. So we're both chasing him down this lane. Next minute I heard gunfire from behind me and it was my colleague uh, firing at the offender. Um, Chirp is flying over your head. Sort of uh, thing. Yeah, I felt one go past my ear, uh, that whistle uh, as a bullet uh, flies past your ear. I, I darted to my left, obviously. Uh, it was my right ear, so I d- darted to my left. But I kept running. I had an objective. I was trying to catch this bloke. 
Anyway, he 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 disappeared amongst um, some gardens, uh, bushes. It turned out that he he would just climb over fences and get under a bush and hide, and, and then as we walked past, he you know climb over again somewhere else and move to the next spot. We called in resources. We got to the area cordoned and uh, we asked for a dog to come in. Uh, brought the dog in. Took a little while, but the dog actually sniffed him out. And he actually tried to attack the dog. Pretty uh, courageous. Eventually the dog won. And, the dog uh, always does. Yes. In those scenarios. Um, so he was captured uh, and... Yeah, he was eventually charged with about 35 rapes in the area. There may have been others that weren't reported because, as I said before, not all these sorts of offences get reported. But generally these kinds of offences where it's an unknown offender come into somebody's home and, uh, you know, commits a, a rape, they are generally reported, but I, I couldn't be sure that there wouldn't be one or two that weren't reported for some reason. So... Yeah, he, he, he was charged and uh, got put away and myself and uh, the other uh, investigators involved, you know, we all got accommodation for, for the arrest. Fantastic. So that, that was really pleasing, get a bit of acknowledgement for a month and a half of night shift, you know, no social life, um, just uh, working because you just slept and, and worked. That's all you did for that, that period of time. Yeah. Now, did you chat to your colleague who'd fired by your head and you're obviously a faster runner than him, so he decided to, to equalise with his Smith & Wesson? Um, yes, we had a chat, you might say. We had a chat and uh, it, it, it did get reported up because I did my sergeant's exams the next year and they had that exact scenario on the sergeant's exams in relation to justification of use of firearms. So, yeah, the... The bosses knew. You still carry a firearm today? Yes, when, when I'm out and about, yes, I do. How often have you had to use it over the years? Well, n- never really. I have pulled it out a couple of times thinking, here we go. But no, never had to actually shoot anybody, thank God. I'm pleased not to have had to do that. Absolutely, because, of course, the greatest weapon's between your ears for a policeman. That's right. And I guess you've been in situations, very highly charged situations, because I guess when, you, when you're dealing in family violence and sexual violence, you have no idea what's going on beyond the threshold. You may be the enemy to both parties in the scenario. Oh, so uh, a very, da- very underrated danger in these situations. Yeah. It, look, it's commonplace for uh, the victim of family violence to attack the police as well, particularly when they haven't called the police. Maybe a neighbour has called the police, you know, when there's a, been a situation going on and uh, they're not happy with the police being there either. Because, again, for all those fears about what's going to happen from here, you know, I lose the breadwinner, I lose my family, I, I don't have a job, you know, how can I support my family? There may have been previous threats to kids and extended family. You know, what's going to happen now? The fact that she didn't call the police doesn't mean that he won't carry out some of the threats or, you know, or she believes that he'll carry out some of those threats that have been made previously. So uh, in the heat of the moment, I can understand that happening. It's not pleasant when it happens, but um, I think, you know, with the training of of police around family violence uh, now that we get that there's an understanding as to why that happens and, you know, they're trained to try to... uh, 
neutralise the victim's aggression towards them as well. Yeah, it's a very tricky situation, I guess, in um, in other situations where you've got an offender who's likely to be violent, could be armed, you might be calling in tactical squads. Yes. But where it's domestic violence, you're going to have a G- general duties officer knocking on the door, maybe only a few months' experience. You're working in a busy station here with exactly that sort of officer. How do you pass on some of your experience about how to conduct yourself safely and to get the job done in those moments? Well, preparation uh, is the key to it. Admittedly, though, they don't always get the chance to do the work that should be done. You know, if you know you're going to a job where there's a history of violence or potential for violence, you know, we'll do all our checks to see whether this person has firearms, for example. But, you know, in saying that, knives are just as dangerous as firearms. So, Lump of wood, brick, whatever. Yeah, everybody has a, a, you know, a kitchen knife, don't they? But it's the preparation that you do and the planning and even on a job that comes in on shift when you're out on the road, the sergeant would normally get involved very early and speak to the troops that are going to that job. So because you're right, it could be very junior members on that van that are going to that job and there's just generally two of them at that point. Uh, if they know it's going to be more violent, they'll call in other units to, so they've got backup. And also maintaining your own composure so your level of arousal is not inciting something to happen. Absolutely. I mean, it's not uncommon for you to get there and you you cop a mouth full of abuse. Well, we don't respond to that. You know, we just keep talking in a passive sort of way to try to get them to understand, look, we're not here to cause you trouble. We're here to try and resolve a situation that's going on for you and maybe get you some help. It doesn't always work, but uh, it works a lot of the time. You still love this job, don't you? I do, yes, absolutely. After all these years, I mean, a lot of police would be well and truly retired now and telling war stories on the public speaking circuit, but what motivates you still to be doing it? Uh, Look, I, I think just the passion for the job, the satisfaction that you get, you know, when you have a successful outcome, you know, You don't have to be a hero every day, but a lot of what we do potentially could put you in that category. It's just doing the right thing by people and and helping them to get out of a a terrible situation that they might be in. And, you know, I just get pleasure from that. Yeah. Now, I don't want to make this about gender, but clearly gender comes up in in this story. And the fact that the force you joined, like 200 women, I think, at the time. That's right. It's very different now. I don't think gender is so much even an issue anymore because you see young men and women, I saw it during the COVID protests, for instance, standing alongside each other, going into harm's way. Yeah. And there's not a question anymore about that, is there? I think, what's changed, do you think? Um, Look, it it, it has taken time, but definitely uh, attitude towards women being able to do policing, I think, has changed within the job. But it's also changed in the community, I think. Uh, Young people today don't have the same hang-ups about working alongside a a woman that they had years ago. The same with um, diversity, you know, in policing. We've got gays, lesbians, transgender people within the organisation and nobody sort of you know, flutters an eyelid about it. It's society today. Young people out there in society, you know, if you say, oh, I'm this or I'm that, today they sort of look at you like, yeah, what's so important about that? 
Yeah, because back in the day when you joined, you weren't even encouraged to say whether you were Catholic or Protestant. The sectarianism back then, but that's, that seems to be blowing away now. Because I guess, I mean, you go back to the old Peel's principles, the policeman is just the community in a, in a uniform effectively. Yes. So, so why shouldn't the police re- reflect the broader community? Well, we do. Uh, every now and again you see a little bit of criticism be directed at police because of something that uh, they did uh, you know, whether they've uh, breached a law or, or a discipline matter, you know, people jump on it and say, oh, you know, the police have done that. And my answer to that is that we are from the society. We reflect the society. And if, uh, you know, 10% of society make bad mistakes or, or are bad or mad, you know, you're going to have 10% of police that are also could fall into any of those categories. So, you know, whilst the organisation does the best it can to uh, vet people that come into policing, it's not a perfect science, unfortunately. No, it's not. I think passing on experience is, is very, very key to being usefully in a job for a long time. Yes, it is. Have you got a little coterie of people that you're influencing and mentoring through the job? I'm pretty proud to say that a, a lot of people that uh, have worked for me as, as senior constables, constables and senior constables, are now inspectors and superintendents. And, and I've had people say to me that I've mentored them. So uh, whether I've done that purposely or whether it's just the way it's happened, I, I think sergeant rank is probably one of the most important ranks in the organisation today and probably always has been because... It's the sergeant who is the direct manager of that constable, senior constable, and they've got the opportunity at that very point to develop that member's, not only their knowledge about law, but how to talk to people is so important. And Murphy used to call it psychology. Remember that? Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's Brian Francis um, Murphy. Very amazing man, and, and I learned a lot from him, particularly how to talk to criminals. He, he would treat a criminal, speak to a criminal, uh, in the same way he would talk to myself or others. And I think that when you're dealing with people, it doesn't matter whether they're a victim or a criminal or, or somebody's made a really bad mistake... We're all human beings and we all like to be treated well. doesn't mean you can't point out they've made a really bad mistake or they've done something really bad, but you can do that in a way that you're not degrading them. Well, that's right, because back in the day, community policing was often about locking up the husband or the son, but then going back to the family and saying, well, how are you going? You know, yeah. you need a feed. Can I connect you to, to the local Catholic services or something like that? And I think you did a bit of this as well. Yeah, uh, when I was in the dealer squad, in the second-hand dealers and pawnbrokers, we uh, investigated at that time another area of policing that I really enjoyed and I knew nothing about before I went into. But um, because we were policing the second-hand dealers and pawnbrokers, we had a lot of people come in selling stolen goods. And this fellow came in one day and he sold some uh, goods that turned out to be stolen. And um, I arrested him, uh, charged him and... Uh, took him before the court and he, he received two weeks jail and he was um, probably a man in his late 40s or 50s and he lived alone and uh, he had a dog and four chooks at home. And as they were taking him out of the dock, he called me over and, he, and it was 
summer because it was really quite hot at the time, he said to me, I've got a dog and four chooks at home and they'll die if I'm in jail for two weeks. So I said, no worries, leave it with me. I'll make some inquiries. So I rang around a few rescue places uh, to see if I'd get something, you know, in place so that these animals wouldn't suffer and kept hitting brick walls on that. So I thought, all right, I'll just go by. It was on my way home from work each day, so I just went by his place on uh, my way home from work and I fed his dog and his chooks. And uh, when he got out of jail, I went and saw him. I showed him the docket from the supermarket and said, look, this is what I've spent, you know, feeding your dog and chooks. And he paid me for the the food that I'd uh, provided. And... um, a few months later, it was Christmas, and I got a Christmas card from him saying thank you, and it had a tats ticket in it, a 50-cent tats ticket. didn't win anything, but it was the thought that counted, and that was pretty special too, really. Yes, because I think people often forget that the police, the police woman's role is not just law and order but also peace. Yes. You're a peace officer, you know, and I think contributing in those ways, connecting people with... That's also what's happening in the the domestic and family violence sphere as well, that police are now much more willing to connect to outside services in a kind of preventative approach. That's really changed. That, that's true. Uh, and part of that is too that there are a lot more services available. Um, I go back to my early days in, in my career. There was less of that available, you know, to uh, help out uh, victims of uh, sexual assault and family violence so, yeah, the more services that we've got out there now, uh, it means that there's, there's better resources for people. It could probably do with some more, I, I would think, uh, but, uh, you know, I'm sure that they'll develop uh, as time goes on because uh, there's definitely a focus on preventing these sorts of situations where women end up on the street sleeping in a car uh, because of family violence or, you know, because they've had to leave their home and... and you know, the breadwinner of the family or or just escape altogether, disappear because, you know, if he knows where she is, you know, he'll find her and and do something, you know, horrible. Yeah, so, it's just providing that little bit of space that someone can make a good decision, get a couple of options, yeah. find a way forward without having to be, you know, brutalised in the process. Um, I'm sure there'll be some young people who are contemplating a career in the police force and as a detective, what advice would you give them? The advice I've provided previously is the same, and that is uh, as a woman, as a girl, believe in yourself. Don't look at what you think you can't do. Look at what you can do and believe that you can do all aspects of the role because none of us are road scholars. We learn on the job. You come in with a desire and a belief in yourself that you can make a difference and and you will. You've just got to be determined to keep pushing ahead. You'll make mistakes. You know, I'd like a dollar for every mistake I've made along the way. You'll make mistakes, but that that doesn't stop you. Everybody makes mistakes. You you come into the job with the, the right intention, the determination to move forward and do good. I don't want to call time on this in any way, but how long do you give yourself still on the job, Joy? Look, I, I'm I'm looking at the 17th of August, 2023, which is 50 years since I graduated from the police academy. Now, 
whilst I haven't put my papers in and who knows, I might decide to go one more year. But um, th- that's a date I'm looking at at this stage and we'll just see how things go. See, I reckon by that stage you'll probably not just be the longest-serving policewoman but probably up there in the longest-serving police person. No. There, no? There, there's probably about uh, four or five people in the organisation still that have been in longer than me, uh, all male. Mm. Um, definitely yeah. I'm the longest-serving policewoman, but there, there's definitely four or five men uh, in, in the uh, organisation that well, you have won't been be leaving longer. Then. You won't be leaving just yet then. We've got, we've got <laughs> milestones not, to pass. Uh, yeah, look, I'd be satisfied um, leaving as the longest-serving policewoman if it comes to that. All right. Well, listen, thank you for making a difference and thank you for your time and thank you for your service. Thank you. You're welcome. If you'd like to hear more of my work, go to Real Crime Features, Real Crime Interviews and State Crime Command Investigations. Thanks for listening. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolic. Associate producer, Matt Dwyer. Research by Nolly Wei Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand. This has been a Real Crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Listener.